the hollow men. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men leaning together, headpiece filled with straw, alas. Our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass, or rats feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. Those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom remember us, if at all, not as lost, violent souls, but only as the hollow men, the stuffed men. I had a dream about this place. Ghost Stories for the End of the World Jubilee Investigative Special. Uh, this weekend, our our great nation will join together to celebrate 70 years of Brenda as the, the capo mafia of Dope Incorporated, you know, which is one of the most egregious crime families in the world. So we're going to see a vast, dark cult of pink-cheeked, ruddy-featured Range Rover admirers, and they will emerge from the yawning alleys and icy bogs of Albion, knitted totems held aloft, toffee and bits of scratch card in their teeth to pay tribute to a deep fake Her Majesty, because as we know, Her Majesty is dead. Um, but there are some people who will definitely not be around for the uh, the festivities. The first is me and my missus, because we will be in Italy, hopefully. When you're hearing this, I will be in Italy, barring something unforeseen, um, to attend my friend's wedding. And if he's listening here, you know, mazel tov to him. Uh, the other person who won't be there for the Jubilee is, of course, uh, Brenda because Brenda is dead. I cannot emphasize this enough. Brenda is dead. The queen is no more. She is in hell. She's gazing up with hatred in her reptilian eyes, bits of scratch card in her teeth. So this won't be a, a very long episode, but I hope it will offer at least a brief reprieve from the unfolding horror, you know, and if it helps you pass a bit of time at work or a family do if you've been cajoled into going along to one, you know, my job is done then. So what I'd like to do <laughs> is explore some of the deep politics surrounding the death of Lady Di, uh, the Queen of Hearts, 
a candle in the wind. Now, I'm hopeful you'll understand that there is some measure of distance in irony at play here with this one. Um, but if you want to say I'm dabbling in conspiracy theory, then, you know, it's one of the few times I will not disagree with you. Uh, think of this kind of like one of those Halloween segments from the specials that we do. You know, we're going to loosen up the usually rigorous fact-checking standards and we're just going to, we're going to go to town. All right, we're going to fill our boots. And I think that this subject has something pretty interesting to tell us almost at a, a meta level about people's relationship with the British monarchy, particularly people from the UK. Um, but I'm also hoping it might inspire you to conduct your own investigation into that, that fateful evening in 1997. That's the night that Britpop died after all. And Take what I give you here and avenge Lady Di, right? Avenge Noel and Damon and Liam and do it for Lady Di's sons, okay? Do it for William, Arthur, Philip, Louis, Mountbatten, Windsor, and do it for Harry Kennedy. Do it for me, Ghost Boy, the monster. So let's start with a scene, right? August 30th, 1997. Diana and Dodi al have just finished eating at the, the Imperial Suite in the Ritz Hotel. The Ritz is owned by Dodi Al-Fayed's dad, Mohammed. And they leave at midnight via the uh, the rear entrance to avoid the... There's about 30 or so paparazzi who are waiting out front. And a decoy car leaves um, from there and helps peel a few of the photographers away. But there is another group of paps who've anticipated that a rear exit will be coming. And they are waiting there. So Diana and Dodie, they climb into a Mercedes W140 S-Class. And it's driven by one Henri Paul. Now, Henri Paul uh, was born in France. He was in the Air Force. And by 1997, he is the head of security at the Ritz Hotel. And friends and colleagues said um, Paul was very excited that day to be the, the personal chauffeur to Lady Di. And he'd been in a state of high excitement, you could call it, all day long. Uh, he finished his regular shift at the hotel at around 9pm. And then he returned at midnight to drive Diana and Dodie to Dodie's apartment. And it is a total mystery what he did in those three hours. Now they drove along uh, Rue Cambon and then they cross the uh, Place de la Concorde, then they take the, they call La Reine, and then they take the road uh, that goes along the right bank of the River Seine. And this takes them into the Place de l'Alma underpass and the Alma Tunnel. Now, Diana and Dodi are sitting in the rear of the car. There's Trevor Reese jones who's their bodyguard. He's sitting in the right front passenger seat. And by this time, the Merc has reached a speed of 65 miles per hour. And this is allegedly in an effort to lose the pups. Scotland Yard, the inquiry operation uh, Paget, and the royal biographer Andrew Morton, they all maintain that Henry Paul is thrice the legal limit on alcohol and he is doped on a cocktail of drugs. By the time the Mercedes clips a white Fiat Uno in the tunnel and spins into a head-on collision with a support pillar, um, he is out of his mind on drugs and booze. 
according to the official narrative. There are 14 CCTV cameras positioned at various points in the Alma Tunnel. None of them record any of the collision, and the owner of the white Fiat Uno has never been traced. Now, the original suspected owner of that Fiat was a man called James Andanson. Now, he sells his white Fiat Uno in October of 1997, and the French police maintain the car was a junker and it wouldn't have been drivable on the night in question. Um, Andanson is found dead in the year 2000, and the French police rule it an open and shut suicide. His body is found in a burned out Mercedes in a forest in southern France. His head was resting on the floor between the front seats, and the police initially judged the hole in the temple to be from a gunshot until a forensic examiner concluded that it had been caused by the fire. I know. I know. So when the paps catch up to the wreck, you know, some of them, some of them try to help. Six or seven of them snap a few pictures and five of these guys are arrested once the police arrive on the scene. And Diana is still conscious. She's in a deep state of shock. And as far as we know, her last words are, oh my God, and leave me alone. Um, her heart had been pushed to the other side of her chest and she went into cardiac arrest and she dies at the hospital at 2.06 a.m. This is August 31st, 1997 now. Dodi is pronounced dead at the scene, as is um, Henri Paul. Trevor Reese jones survives, but his face has been destroyed and head trauma has left him with no memory of the night. Uh, Mohammed Al-Fayed, who's Dodi's dad, he will end up contributing towards the cost of reconstructive surgery. Um, a surgeon will rebuild um, Reese Jones's face using 150 pieces of titanium. So I shan't go too long on the madness that followed this because it's been documented at length over the last 25 years. Um, I don't think we're going to see a level of hysteria that intense until they finally admit that the queen is dead. Um, I think we might well nuke a former colony in her honor or something when we finally get the news. Um, I just find it, I find it remarkably unsettling to imagine what this place is going to be like when, you know, that phone call gets made and the code word gets spoken, London Bridge has fallen. There's one thing that's important for us to keep in mind um, as we go on, and, and that is that in the outpouring of grief and hysteria, you know, back in 1997, the apparent indifference of the royal family to the news of Diana's death, that ignited something very close to an insurrectionary sentiment. It was at least as close as the British can ever get to that type of feeling. Anyway, Tony Blair briefly became a national hero at that point. He'd just been elected, you know, tidal wave of goodwill. He's the one who stepped up and, you know, coined that term, the people's princess. He sort of became the statesman, the queen and the royal family sort of retreated and became these trolls, you know, miserably lurking inside Buckingham Palace. And the reason I, I note this is because it partly helps explain the mad scrambling that took place inside the British security state in the years that followed. And I can't emphasize just how in the bag for the royal family, um, SIS is, that's MI6, 
they look at the monarchy as it's both the foundation on which everything else here rests. And it's also the shining star around which everything revolves, you know. Now, individual people, with the exception of the queen, individual members of the royal family are fairly expendable, you know. Um, I think I mentioned this before, but during the Epstein stuff, when all that was unfolding with Prince Andrew, there were a few articles that had clearly been planted in outlets like The Telegraph and The Times in which anonymous MI6 sources were briefing journalists that they were worried that the Russians had compromise on Andrew, you know. And if you know how to read these sorts of anonymous briefings, what they were really doing there is, in my opinion, firing a warning shot at Andrew, telling him, step back, keep quiet, you know. Um, we don't want to have to take measures, but we may have to if you have any more incidents like that Newsnight interview, you know. Yeah, the, but basically the spooks see the institution of the monarchy as that important to the health and well-being of the nation and the body politic, or at least a certain version of it, you know. And in a sense, they're not wrong. Um because they are the the pillar that holds up everything else that's awful and shitty and backwards and oppressive about this country, you know, symbolic but important. Um, so what we saw here was a period of, of cleaning up, you know, of narrative spin, close coordination with French police and intelligence to construct a marketable account of what happened. Now, I was way too young to understand any of this at the time. And I have to confess, you know, it's only the last few years, really, that I've paid much attention to the circumstances of Diana's death and, and the kind of the deeper story behind it. But this year's Jubilee has had me thinking about it again, because Britain had a moment, as we say, in the late summer and the early autumn of 1997, we had a real moment, people. We thought bad things about mummy. And you can read quite a lot, in my opinion, you can read quite a lot of the last 25 years as a sort of protracted, grotesque display of sorrow and guilt and shame that we ever questioned the purpose of the royal family um, as intensely as we did during those heady days back then. Now, 2008 inquest into Diana's death. That concluded, quote, the crash was caused or contributed to by the speed and manner of the driving of the Mercedes, the speed and manner of driving of the following vehicles, the impairment of the judgment of the driver of the Mercedes through alcohol, and there are nine of us who agree on those conclusions. In addition, the death of the deceased was caused or contributed to by the fact that the deceased were not wearing seatbelts, the fact that the Mercedes struck the pillar in the Alma tunnel rather than colliding with something else, and we are unanimous on that. And now this is basically accepted as the official narrative. So there's something else to keep in mind here. The royal family likes to map out its family tree and its ancestry. It loves to do that. Every single drop of blood is scrupulously accounted for, stretching back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. We're going to circle back to this. So I ask you now, I ask you to think about that scene in the Alma Tunnel, but realize that that scene, my friend, 
that is actually an overlay, right? There is another picture beneath it, right? Blink, clear your vision, and, and what can you observe? What can you detect? Because I don't know about you, friend, but I detect a secretive beast rising menacingly from the seafloor, the path, the path that connects the royal family to the Ritz Hotel, to French intelligence, to MI6, to the car crash in the tunnel. If you know where to look, that's not a path at all, my friends. It is a tentacle. And it also connects spooks and Saudi tycoons and arms dealers and more. The beast is circling just beneath the surface of these, these choppy waters here. And that beast is the octopus. So this is from the Daily Express. This is November 6, 2006. Quote, Scotland Yard sources disclosed earlier this year that the French government had finally confirmed Henri Paul's employment by the country's domestic intelligence service, the Direction de la Surveillance du Territoire, or the DST, during discussions last year. The £4 million inquiry, codenamed Operation Paget and launched in January 2004, has ground to a halt because of the reluctance of the French intelligence services to surrender all their documents on their contact, Paul. Well-placed sources say such blocking tactics cast serious doubt on the French police conclusion that the crash was a drink-driving accident and strengthened fears of secret service involvement in a murder plot. The role of Henri Paul and his whereabouts on the night of August 31st, 1997, he met secret service handlers hours before taking the wheel, are now the key points in the increasingly complex inquiry. Now, for as much as um, Mohammed Al-Fayed went all out to try and prove there was some kind of French intelligence MI6 plot behind the deaths of his son and, um, and Diana, it's probably worth mentioning that he had more than a few um, deep connections of his own. Now, this is from Ken Thomas and Jim Keith, quote, Lord Earl Spencer, Diana's father, was the best friend of Adnan Khashoggi's brother-in-law, Mohammed Al-Fayed. Al-Fayed was connected to a group of intelligence operatives known as the K-Team through a CIA front called Castle Securities. Castle Securities was allegedly involved in securities fraud and the junk bond scandal. Members of the K-Team included, are you ready? Oliver North, John Poindexter, Richard Secord, and Adnan Khashoggi. And it was in the context of this joint US-British trade in arms in the Middle East, you know. It was, it was then that Khashoggi's brother-in-law, Mohammed Al-Fayed, he uh, basically, he, he nearly brought down the British government. Um, there's not to f put too fine a point on it or anything like that, but um, he had a major falling out with these conservative, deep political operators that were around Thatcher, you know, they were kind of much like the, uh, the Reaganites, you know, that, the, that was their vibe, basically. Um, the problem with the Jim Keith and Ken Thomas book about the octopus, just incidentally, they never have enough self-control to realize that, you know, the provable shit they have about deep intrigue in like Reagan's America and Clinton's America it's already mind-blowing enough, you know. They can't seem to help themselves. They always have to take an extra three or four steps until they're fully off the deep end and, you know, you know, put in stock in absolutely every claim they dig up. Anyway, uh, nevertheless, Keith and Thomas, they're not wrong 
to highlight just how mobbed in with the British and American deep state Al Fayed uh, is, or at least you know at, was back then. Uh, I'll give you another example. In 1985, the pound was flatlining. You know, it was Sparco, as we say. So Thatcher invited Al Fayed to take tea at Downing Street, and she also invited the Sultan of Brunei. Uh, Brunei at that time, um, the Sultan of Brunei, sorry. He had a little over $25 billion in foreign reserves that had been deposited in the city of London. And it said that as a result of this meeting with Al-Fayed, the Sultan was persuaded not to exchange billions of pounds into dollars, you know, which uh, helped ease the pressure on Britain's currency. And Al-Fayed did this at the request of Thatcher and her machine. Now, the relationship between the British establishment and Al-Fayed, that began to sour in the mid-80s. And that's because of this vicious, vicious war for control of Harrods that he he got into with a fella named Tiny Rowland, right? Now, Rowland is himself, or was, quite the murky operator. Uh, he was born to German parents in Hamburg. Uh, they emigrated to Britain in 1937 to escape the Nazis. Roland had actually been a member of the Hitler Youth, you know. Uh, he anglicised his name when he turned 21, and he served in the Royal Army Medical Corps during World War II. And his family had interests in the city of London. Um, and in 1962, he moved to Rhodesia, and he took up a position as chief of the London Rhodesia Mining Corporation, what was then called Rhodesia, you know, or Lonra. And this is from a Nick Davis article called A Portrait of the Bastard as a Rebel. Quote, at the start of World War II, Roland volunteered to become an intelligence officer with MI6, but he was turned down. According to a long-term associate, Tiny was granted his wish to work for the intelligence services three years after he first volunteered. His four weeks in jail and his subsequent discharge from the army were both arranged so that he could go through the motions of being interned with Oswald Mosley's fascists, thus becoming a spy and an official informer. This associate of Tiny's wonders out loud at the bizarre coincidence that one of the original directors of Lonro, who was responsible for hiring Tiny in 1961, was one Sir Joseph Ball, formerly of MI5 and the Home Defence Executive. If Roland was a British agent in the Isle of Man, Sir Joseph would have been one of his controllers. And it's also of note as well that um, while he was at Lonro, Tiny sat on the board alongside a guy called Nick Elliott, who was also an MI6 officer. Um, and it seems pretty obvious that Roland was receiving tip-offs and information as he traveled the globe on business. Uh, business. So um, in Sudan, uh, he found out that there was um, going to be an attempted communist coup, and he flew key government figures back uh, over there so that they could get involved. Um, and MI6 then ensured that like communist fighters were sent to Libya um, and the firing squads, you know, to try and head off that coup uh, because it, it harmed British interests. Um, very spooky guy, very strange guy. Now, Roland and Al-Fayed had a good old-fashioned shit fight with each other over the acquisition of Harrods. And even after Al-Fayed won the bidding war, with an offer of uh, £615 million, I believe. 
Roland continued trying to sabotage the sale. Uh, he was publishing dirt on the Al-Fayed family in his paper, uh, which was The Observer, interestingly enough, um, later acquired by The Guardian, of course. It really does speak, all of this speaks to how basically every powerful man is a child, you know, um, when you read what happened during this, this war. He hired a team of 30 private investigators after he'd already lost the bid for Harrods. He hired a team of 30 PIs to dive into Al-Fayed's background and, and fish for information. And they exposed the fact that Al-Fayed had misrepresented his um, family history and the extent of uh, his wealth. And Al-Fayed had claimed that he was part of a rich Egyptian dynasty when in actuality his dad was a school inspector and Al-Fayed himself, you know, got his start selling Coca-Cola. And again, this is from The Independent. Quote, Mr. Rowland, however, managed to inflict a deep wound with these revelations. In 1987, the government ordered a DTI inquiry into Mr. Fayed's activities. The resulting report was completed in 1988 and made public two years later. On oh, just by the way, the DTI is the Department of Trade and Industry. Um, anyway, it goes on. For a government document, it is astonishingly blunt. On the Harrods takeover, it declares... The Fayeds dishonestly misrepresented their origins, their wealth, their business interests, and their resources to the Secretary of State, the OFT, the press, the House of Fraser board, and the House of Fraser shareholders, and their own advisors. And it concludes, we are both satisfied that the image they created between November 1984 and March 1985 of their wealthy Egyptian ancestry was completely bogus. Mohammed Al-Fayed, he, he wasn't a Coca-Cola salesman for very long, you know. I mean, this is a typically British thing. Uh, he was a rich guy. Um, yeah, all right, his family wasn't as connected as he's made out. I can't believe I'm defending um, a millionaire, but, you know, for the sake of balance. Um, I mean, he founded a shipping company with his brothers, developed a, a network of contacts in Saudi Arabia, the Middle East in general, Haiti, and the UK. He was good friends with Papa Doc, and he became very close friends with the Sultan of Brunei. Uh, he even served a spell on the board of Lonro in the 1970s, where Tiny Rowland was chief exec. And, you know, obviously there were other MI6 officers circulating at the same company. But this is where things get strange, as they always do when you talk about Britain, because after Tiny Rowland lost his bidding war with Al-Fayed, apparently he was stung by the lack of support that he'd received, you know, from his establishment contacts. So he secretly financed a documentary. And this documentary was called The Maltese Double Cross. Um, his company, the Metropole Hotels, they owned Hemar Enterprises, which meant that an MI6 asset was financing a brilliant expert demolition of the official narrative of the Lockerbie bombing. And this movie, <laughs> incidentally, this movie was directed by Alan Frankovic. Uh, that was the same guy who directed the excellent, amazing Operation Gladio film. Um, I mean, watch any of his documentaries about, you know, uh, intelligence operations and intrigue. They're all really good. I, I can't quite explain this unless Roland thought that he was going to perform some sort of limited hangout here. I mean, we do have 
good reason to think that he might have been trying to use the film as a way to communicate his unhappiness with the uh, state of affairs, you know, his unhappiness with his old friends by releasing some shit, but not too much, you know, because he did actually insist that the film not mention uh, Bernd Carlson, who was an opponent of the South African apartheid regime and the uh, assistant secretary general of the UN. My Lockerbie knowledge is a bit um, hazy at the moment. And he also asked that they not discuss, I think it was, there was a break-in at Heathrow Airport um, that it was connected in some way to Lockerbie. I'm really sorry about this. I'm blanking on the, the exact details. But uh, yeah, he asked that they not mention that either. So limited hangout, but an interesting move for someone like Tiny Rowland to make nevertheless. Um, oh, and by the way, um, in 1997, Frankovic was putting together a documentary about Olaf Palm and he died of a heart attack in George Bush International Airport in Houston. And that's one of those things, baby, that if I sit with that for too long, I can feel my mind drifting out over the abyss, you know. So we're going to move on. We're going to move on. So by 1996, uh, Mohammed al-Fayed, he was out for revenge against the, the Tories, the government of the day. Um, he never faced any legal consequences, you know, for what, what came out in these reports and exposés, but the way he saw it, it was like a personal slight, you know, with these guys, again, children, it's all about like personal honor and, and whatnot. Uh, he said, quote, the report was a scandal. They could not accept that an Egyptian could own Harrods. So they threw mud at me and my family. Um, and again, this is from the independent 12 years later, the valued contact of the Tory prime minister and the instrument by which the pound was secretly saved has become a whistleblower for a crusading left of center newspaper. I love how like newspapers won't mention rival newspapers in print a lot of the time. That's quite funny to me. Anyway, the bulk of the evidence of corruption that was thrown at the government last week was supplied by him willingly and deliberately as a result. And for the second time in three years, he is casting a cloud over the Tory party conference and he may yet contribute to their defeat in a general election. In fact, Mohammed Al-Fayed had been quite a big supporter of the Tory party. He donated 250,000 pounds to the Tories when Thatcher was PM. And um, yeah, after these reports came out, calling him basically a fake and a fraud and a phony and a, a con artist, it's like a switch flipped, you know, and he, he was a man on a mission then. But yeah, frankly, when you delve into this acrimonious relationship between Mohammed Al-Fayed and the British deep state, you do start to understand why he'd think that his son was murdered by MI6 because the spooks had been at his door for years, you know, particularly after he started to name names during the, uh, the Cash for Questions scandal in 1994, 95. And now one of the bigger Tory scalps that, he claimed when he started giving names that belonged to the chief secretary to the treasury, who was Jonathan Aiken. Uh, Fayad revealed that he'd actually comped Aiken at the Ritz in Paris so that he could hold a meeting with a group of Saudi arms dealers. And Aiken tried to sue him for libel and wound up doing time for perjury instead. Aiken had also chaired 
Le Cercle between 1993 and 1996, and he continued to attend meetings of the group around the world until at least the year 2000. sort of focus in now, narrow in on Diana herself, right? CBS News, April 2004, quote, she was convinced she was going to be killed, says Diana's old friend, Argentinian businessman, Roberto Deverick, who recalls Diana often speaking of murderous plots against her. She said, when it's not convenient anymore, I will, they will, blow me up in a car or in a helicopter. This past January, the London Mirror reported that just months before her death, Diana had written a note saying, my husband is planning an accident in my car, brake failure, and serious injury. You know who her husband was, friends. I don't know if um, I can actually say it on the air, even though we know like who she's referring to. I just don't know. So I'm not going to say it, but you know who that is. Another mysterious note that then appears in 2003, and this was written by Diana's lawyer, uh, Victor Miscon. Uh, now, Miscon had actually given this to the cops in 1997, but they didn't reveal they had it uh, for six years. And this was during Operation Paget, and Miscon uh, read a statement about this. And in his statement, he said, quote, on October 30th, 1995, Lord Mishcon attended a meeting with the Princess of Wales and her private secretary, Patrick Jefferson. Following that meeting, Lord Mishcon prepared a handwritten note. He wrote that the Princess of Wales had told him that reliable sources, whom she did not wish to name, had informed her that by April 1996, whether in an accident in her car, such as a pre-prepared brake failure, or by other means, efforts would be made, if not to get rid of her, then at least to see that she was so injured or damaged as to be declared unbalanced. The Princess of Wales apparently believed that there was a conspiracy and that both she and Camilla Parker Bowles were to be put aside. Lord Mishcon told the Princess of Wales that if she really believed her life or being was under threat, 
Security measures, including those relating to her car, must be increased. He did not believe that what she was saying was credible, and he sought a private word with Patrick Jeffson, who, to Lord Mishkon's surprise, said that he half believed the accuracy of her remarks regarding her safety. I take that to mean that Jeffson was saying, I believe that they possibly might want to get rid of, you know, Lady Diana. Not so much about Camilla Parker Bowles. She's pretty well bedded in there now. So yeah, Diana does seem to have been uh, increasingly paranoid in the months leading up to her death. Uh, this is from CNN, October 2003. Apologies for hitting you with all these clippings, but it's just, it's the best way of summing up how dizzying all this is. Quote, Princess Diana warned of a plot to tamper with the brakes of her car 10 months before she died, according to a British newspaper. The Princess of Wales wrote to her former butler, Paul Burrell, saying her life was at its most dangerous phase, the Daily Mirror reported on Monday. It quotes the letter as saying, Redacted is planning an accident in my car, brake failure and serious head injury in order to make the path clear for Charles to marry. So, yeah... That's where we're at, right, at this point. But if I can just briefly kind of get to some loopy stuff, because one thing that I quite enjoy when I read um, conspiracy theories about our royal family is how many uh, kooks they attract. And there are some, like, there's some truly outstanding takes on what really happened the night that Diana died. But my favourite, my favourite anti-Windsor conspiracy theorists, they're the ones who don't, they don't criticize the monarchy for being the monarchy, you know, per se, but you're rather for being illegitimate somehow. And um, this is the best one I ever found. And it's from a poster called Raelian Allen. And it was uploaded in 1997 on Conspiracy Nation. Quote, Princess Diana and her soon-to-be husband, Dodi Fayed, died in the Pont de la Alma tunnel. The site is ancient, dating back to the time of the Merovingian kings. In pre-Christian times, the Pont de la Alma was a pagan sacrificial site. In the time of the Merovingian kings, the Pont de la Alma was an underground chamber. Founder of the Merovingian dynasty was Merovius, said to be descended from the union of a sea creature and a French queen. <laughs> uh, Merocaeus followed the pagan cult of Diana. In Middle English, Sol, Alma, has, as its etymology, descended from the sea. Pon has, as a Latin root, pontifex, meaning a Roman high priest. All true European royalty is descended from the Merovingians, which are believed to be descendants of Jesus Christ. Man, Jesus Christ, yeah, tell me about it. The current British royal family are imposters. The House of Windsor is a fraud, but the lineage of Lady Diana Spencer goes back to Charles II, House of Stuart. The House of Stuart is of true royal blood. Diana's sons, William and Harry, have three quarters true nobility in their blood. So basically, this kind of feels like it's riffing a bit with Diana's suspicion that she was going to be bumped off so that the path was clear for Charles to remarry, you know? Only it's gone into this whole other psychedelic realm of batshit that I think is wonderful. So what are we to make of all this, you know, when we, we break it down? Basically, was there a conspiracy to murder the People's Princess and the Britpop movement? And to be honest, I don't know. And I'm sure there will be people listening to this who are furious that I haven't included this or that 
in our pet theory. But if we say there was some kind of conspiracy afoot, right, then here's what I think was going on. And this might be unsatisfying, but it's the simplest um, explanation. And it's the one that feels closest to the money here. So we will accept this thing about Charles needing to remarry, but there's something else as well. Two words, Egyptian baby, right? Three words, Egyptian Muslim baby, right? The royal family are very proud of the fact that they have an unbroken Anglo-Saxon bloodline stretching back hundreds, thousands of years, allegedly, you know, if their claims are to be believed. It's difficult to overemphasize just how fucking weird they are when it comes to this issue of race and class and genetics in the family. This entire nation lives in a continuous fever dream. And it's a fever dream we have about being the only country, you know, that matters, the country that saved the world from the Nazis. And yet at the same time, we worship and venerate this strange clan of German white supremacists who live off the public tit and condemn uh, relatives with disabilities to mental health asylums because they bring shame on the family. And this is a real thing that happens in that family, right? Nerissa and Catherine Bowes Leon were two of the Queen's cousins and they were born with learning difficulties. And they never learned to talk and they were classified as imbeciles by the royal uh, physicians. And both of them were shipped off to Earlswood Hospital. And they were listed as, you know, having died in 1940 and 1961, respectively. But it later emerged that they actually lived until 1986 and 2014. And the royal family cut off all contact with them. And they only paid £125 a year to the hospital towards their care. And the extended family, you know, the ones who even knew that the girls existed, they were forbidden from speaking about them. If you had mentioned this at a certain time in the past and they'd have had the term conspiracy theorist, you would have been dismissed as one, you know. And you have to wonder how many other kids, how many other royal kids has this happened to? They were born into the family and for some stupid reason or another, they didn't quite fit the mold of what uh, royalty, British royalty should look like, you know. And then you think that Charles is the one that made it through. Outrageous. Lady Diana, she was born into a, a lesser house, lesser nobility, you might say. But, you know, in keeping with the, um, the sheer fucking weirdness of the British aristocracy, she was considered a disappointment, um, when she was born because the family had been hoping for a male heir because her mother was unable to conceive a baby boy. Her husband, who was called John Spencer Viscount Althra, right? He sent Diana's mother to Harley Street private doctors and they subjected her to what sounds for all intents and purposes like sexual medical torture. And this was in order to diagnose the cause of this, what, what, John Spencer called the condition, by which he means um, the fact that she just not happened to have a baby boy. You know, now this is not this is not way off in the midst of time, people. This is mid twentieth century. You know, we're putting people on the moon during this period of time, and 
we've got this guy running around doing this to his missus. So if a lesser house in the British elite, if a lesser house is this fucked up and weird about heirs and bloodlines, imagine what blood-curdling horrors caper and gibber in the minds of a bona fide member of the royal family. Look at what happened when Harry and Meghan announced they were expecting, you know, I think the main question those freaks were asking them was uh, how dark will the baby's skin be? These people are sick. They are deeply, deeply sick. Outrageous. So factor in everything we've discussed so far, right? The tension between uh, the fired family and the British deep state, the tension between Diana and the royals, this issue of Charles wanting a clear path to get remarried, Diana's mounting paranoia, um, the fact that they're was some credibility to what she was saying about this suspicion she had that she was going to be killed, right? And now think about the royal family itself. You know, this is a country. Oh, it's hard to remember a time when uh, this was true, but I mean, in 1997, we've just got new labor in. Countries arrived in the wave of, you know, cool Britannia, blah, 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 blah. We're on the precipice and it seems like the future is actually possible. You know, we've not woken up. Yeah. And the royal family are looking at that and they're thinking, shit, I mean, Diana's setting the kind of example where we might be expected to emulate what she's doing in some way. We might be expected to, you know, sing a little louder for our supper, shall we say. They were totally in her shade. That's what I'm trying to say. The monarchy as an institution was beginning to look very outmoded and very irrelevant. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't really put much stock in any of these theories, you know, were it not for a rogue MI6 spook called Richard Tomlinson. And I trust Tomlinson precisely because he's so inconsistent and obviously changed his story under pressure a number of times. Um, I trust him because he's had his name dragged through the mud because he's been chased out of pretty much every UK friendly country that he's tried to settle in because the BBC and the great and good of the establishment media fucking hate him. And because he's um, he's an arrogant prick who doesn't seem to care whether people believe him or not, you know. Tomlinson said that Henri Paul was an MI6 asset. He said MI6 devised a plan to assassinate Slobodan Milosevic in 1992 that would have involved pulling up alongside his car during a high-speed pursuit and hitting the driver with a strobe light to dazzle them and create a car crash. In 2007, a witness called Francois Levistre says that he saw two men on a motorbike pull up behind the Mercedes and fire off a strobe light. There were other witnesses who backed him up, but none of them wanted to give their names. And this caused the car to veer out of control. So put it together, baby. You know, only Paul's handlers meet him. When he finished work at 9 p.m., they spike his drink, you know, maybe. They get him good and fucked up. They tip off the paps. They know the paps will turn the drive back to Fayed's apartment into a car chase. And then the hitmen with the strobe lights enter the scene. For all, you know, the flash and fire about how there's nothing here and that it was a tragic accident, there is also this little tidbit that has never really been uh, followed up on. I've looked and looked and it's sort of hand-waved away. 
but this is from Reuters, quote, London's Metropolitan Police did not elaborate on the information or its source, but Britain's Sky News television station said it had come from the parents-in-law of a former soldier and had been passed on by the Royal Military Police. Sky said it understood the new information included an allegation that the deaths of Diana Doty and their driver were caused by a member of the British military. A royal spokeswoman said there would be no comment. Then again, you know, maybe it really was just an accident. For me, you know, it's entirely possible and plausible that the British royal family and MI6 colluded to assassinate Diana and Doty purely out of concern over, you know, what their marriage and potential family might do in terms of destabilizing the monarchy. What really matters, and I don't mean this to sound horrible, you know, I kind of hate those people who go overboard being like vicious about people like Diana, who essentially was, seems relatively harmless, you know, from what I've read about her. Um, but yeah, it's not so much that they killed her. It's that if they did kill her, what are you to them? You know, if they killed her, they can kill anyone, man. And that's, I think, that's the reason why this stuff matters. You know, if if there really was a murder conspiracy, it's not so much that, you know, she was killed or whatever. It's that, you know, if they can get to her and get away with it, we, we are nothing <laughs> you know, compared to that, man. I think ultimately what's most interesting of all to me, what really speaks to the kind of depraved fractured darkness that's howling at the center of the national psyche in this country. It's that there are plenty of um, ordinary people who do not believe the official narrative about the car crash at all. They have no trouble accepting that Lady Diana was killed by the British establishment or that Prince Andrew is a sweatless sexual predator that Prince Charles is a piece of shit, that Lord Mountbatten was a nonce who gave very serious thought and consideration to heading up a fucking military junta to replace a democratically elected government, you know. We, we can know all this and accept it. We know that Versailles draws more tourism money without a royal family than it does with one. And deep down, it's, it's pretty obvious, come on, the Queen is dead anyway, and we should be thinking about why we want to keep this weird little clan up on their pedestal, you know, if she's really gone. And we accept all of this can be true and that they represent the sum of our evil. And we will still knit jolly bonnets for post boxes and hang bunting over the garage door. Right now, as I speak to you, my hands keep seeking needle and hull and I, I can't even knit. This is how conditioned you are in this country you know what i mean it's outrageous so yeah i'll leave you with that nice little bumper bonus episode for this week casino 5 will be out in i believe about two weeks time i don't know if anyone saw the post on patreon or in the discord but basically i had it written it was ready to go and then when I was playing it back, it's just, it's kind of too scattershot, a little bit all over the place. So I'm going to tweak it, re-edit it, you know, and it might possibly end up coming out as two long episodes, but we shall see. Until then, and as ever, 
Mark the exits, check the sight lines, don't get captured, and enjoy the Jubilee. This is outrageous, this is contagious, yeah. This is outrageous, this is contagious. Ooh, ooh, feel it, yeah, feel it. So I say, in the mists of graveyards, things come to life, and it's dangerous. Keep away from it. I'm so dangerous. You know that. Oh! 